Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut or shortened due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. Listening colour. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Good morning, this is Jazz Shapers. I'm Elliot Moss. Jazz Shapers, the place where you can hear the very best of the people shaping the world of jazz, soul and blues. And right alongside them, we put someone who is called a business shaper, someone who's shaping the world of business. I'm very pleased to say that that person today is Dr. Ben Marathapu, co-founder and CEO of Seracare, a multi-award winning technology company transforming social care. As a junior doctor, Ben Marathupu witnessed the effects of a dysfunctional home care system and what it was having on patients and the NHS. Around 4,500 patients per day are stuck in hospital because their care hasn't been organised on time and low-quality home care means patients can ping-pong in and out of hospital. While thinking on this, Ben had his own experience of organising care for a loved one. Seracare was launched in 2016, fusing artificial intelligence with social care and aiming to change the world of home care by supporting elderly people to live where they are most comfortable and happy. Sarah now has a presence in 15 cities across England and plans to expand into Europe and the US too. We'll be talking to Ben in a few minutes about the fastest growing demographic in the West, that's the retired population, and the positive impact of technology. Also in Jazz Shapers today, we have brilliant music from Dee Dee Bridgewater, Refugee Camp All-Stars and Lauren Hill. Before that, here's the one and only Quincy Jones with Summer in the City. Was Quincy Jones with Summer in the City. I'm with Dr. Ben Marathapu, and he is the CEO and co-founder of Sarah Care. It's really nice to have you here. Thank um, you. Nice to be here. Tell me why a doctor, and I've had a few on the programme, why someone in the medical profession decides to become an entrepreneur. I think um, working in healthcare at the moment is a unique opportunity, and it's great to be able to serve patients and work with um, brilliant team members. Um, But at the same time, you also see firsthand some of the challenges that patients, families, uh, clinicians, nurses and so on are experiencing, which puts you in a fantastic and always privileged position to try and tackle those challenges. Um, In our context at Seracare, we're trying to transform social care in the UK and internationally through harnessing technology. And I experienced some of the challenges in social care, firsthand through my role as a doctor, where I used to see patients coming into A&E, unfortunately deteriorating in their health um, and getting worse because they hadn't received the care that they needed in their home. Um, I'd also experienced it through organising care for my mother and my grandmother and seeing how difficult that process was. And finally, I used to do a lot of policy work in the NHS, and it became quite clear at the national level, one of the biggest challenges the NHS is facing is actually outside of it, and that is social care. Um, Because if people receive the services they need in their own home or or in a care home, uh, they don't need to go to hospital or see their GP anywhere near as often, and they can be kept healthy and happy there. 
Um, and part of our ethos at Sarah is really to support people in living their best lives in their own home. Now, I understand that your exposition of that is, is spot on because you've seen it and you, you looked and you said, hold on, this, this isn't working. It could work much better. From a purely medical point of view, you could have taken the view that, well, I'm in the system, I'm just going to do my best. You could have taken a policy view and said, well, I'm going to tell other people how to do it. But you've gone a different route. And that's what interests me. Both of those two routes are, la- are laudable. And many, most people in your position, about 99% would do that. But you chose the, I'm going to do something about this. Mm-hmm. Why, Ben? Why, what's in your DNA that pushed you that way? Absolutely. I think I've always been interested in building companies, organisations, even I think when I was a teenager, I ran a small charity that supported people living in their homes by organising for students and volunteers to look after them. And then I set up some organisations after that as well in the healthcare and medical space. Um, So I think I've always been a founder at heart. But also, from my point of view, the solution in social care didn't exist at that point. And so we needed to build it. And I think when it comes to harnessing technology, uh, most of the most uh, or the effective solutions and answers that have been created through innovation um, have been done so through businesses and ventures uh, at a local level, which then expand and scale as opposed to through national programs. So even when the NHS is adopting technology, there is a technology provider or company or startup that has built that solution and then the NHS partners with it to adopt it. In social care, I didn't think that solution existed. And so I thought it was important to try and build it so that many families, patients, uh, service users, and also frontline staff could benefit from innovation and from smartphone-based technology uh, in their day-to-day work. And in terms of your your journey to become a founder, again, I meet many, many people and all sorts of on the spectrum, all sorts of spectrums, actually, to be honest with you, but spectrum of um, academic, not not academic. And without labouring your own background, you've um, a triple first from Cambridge, you went to Oxford, you went to Harvard. That may not have led you down the entrepreneurial path either. Was there a moment actually where you encountered lots of other people who were thinking about founding businesses? Is that also part of the thing that happened to you? That is also what happened. So when I was in the US on the East Coast, I was amazed by how entrepreneurial people are. I mean, you could look at a student in a university, you could look at someone, a surgeon in a hospital or a research academic. Everyone has a startup or a technology initiative that they're building either on the side or as part of their full-time job. And that's probably why we've seen major technology companies such as Facebook and Microsoft coming out of uh, student dorm rooms on the East Coast in the US. And you can feel it when you're there. You really can. You can feel it in the air, how entrepreneurial, how innovative the culture is. And that's where I think I caught the startup bug. Uh, when I moved back to the UK, started practicing and then doing some of my policy work, um, I really focused on innovation technology because of that experience. But also I had the itch to try and build something myself. So now you're running a tech business. You've been funded to the tune of over £20 million since you launched in 2016. How does the professional doctor who wants to be an entrepreneur get his head around the fact that he's not a technologist? <laughs> it's definitely been a steep learning curve. He's smiling very broadly, by the way, at this point. <laughs> very steep learning curve, um, but enjoyable. I think um, some of the skills that you learn in medicine are definitely transferable. Uh, communication skills, being able to um, understand and empathise with the challenges your consumers or users are experiencing and then have an analytical approach to trying to tackle that. 
But at the same time, um, I've had to pick up a lot of things on the way, understanding how to actually build a technology platform, understanding product design, marketing, branding, uh, raising money and uh, the legal elements to that as well, all the way, of course, to the financial uh, components of our business and how to um, make that as strong as possible. But I think it's really been um, a result of the people around me. My team members, investors, our board, who are extremely supportive and have allowed me to have the relevant guidance, particularly the more challenging times in uh, our company, which is ensure that we've made the right decision. And and in terms of putting that team together um, and those very early days when you said, I'm going to do this, how did it work? Because, again, you're then really staring over an abyss. I mean, an interesting one at that and the kind of what could be possible. But where did you start? I actually started with some of my friends from school um, <laughs> okay. who uh, uh, were in more of the technology startup space and um, helped to almost educate me on some of the process for trying to uh, launch a, a business, raise uh, investment, put together relevant team members. So they were really helpful in that. And also I had some mentors who I'd picked up along the way and who I'd met who had more business experience than I did, who also provided me with a lot of um, insights uh, and expertise. And once you laid out kind of the initial plan, which of course you rebuild over and over again in a startup, that served as the launchpad for setting up Sarah. And um, you continued to work, I imagine, for a period of time. How long were you kind of in your day job and then also planning and plotting before you actually said, I can't do this the day job anymore? At what point did you switch? I think it was a period of months. And then there was some period where I was still engaging with my um, medical training and trying to keep up to date um, whilst also running uh, the business. But now I'm full time, more than full time uh, <laughs> in running Sarah. Um, and I think if you're going to build a business effectively, it does require you to really focus and dedicate yourself wholeheartedly to it. It always strikes me that doctors undergo huge amounts of stress because, you know, most people in normal life don't deal with life and death. They don't see death very often. It's a pretty, you know, it's a it's a big thing. Is it stressful now or is there super levels of perspective that us mere mortals who don't become doctors just don't have because you've seen much worse or is it you just, you've just forgotten your old world and gone, I'm really stressed because it's hard? It definitely gives you perspective um, because let's say when I've worked on a hospital ward and someone's had a cardiac arrest and we've had to try and do chest compressions and resuscitate them or there have been other very acute or sudden changes in their health that you've had to try and manage quickly, those are very stressful um, and challenging situations, which are also emotionally difficult the first couple of times that you're experiencing them. But in a similar manner, building a business can also have its stressful moments and experience is what's ultimately most important, I think. The, the processing emotions, just a, one, one quick thing before we go to some um, words of advice from our programme partners at Michigan. That stress, and as you said, the first time you, ha- you experience something pretty big and traumatic, it's hard. Is it that you isolate yourself from it, you remove yourself, or is it that you confront it and then you you let it come in and you work it through? I'm just interested on that because I think there's a similarity in business as well. I think you do need to confront it. I think if you put your head in the sand, things may get worse, actually. Um, and I think it's important to really sit down, absorb and reflect on uh, what may have happened and in turn the way forward. You've got to be forward looking. You need to try and keep a steady head in the medical world, in the business world and in others as well at any point of difficulty. And then, of course, it's really powerful to have a support network who can provide a more objective view on what's going on and make suggestions or recommendations on how you can navigate the trials ahead. 
stay with me for much more from my very wise but young and clever too how annoying is this uh, Dr Ben Marathapu um, he'll be back in a couple of minutes but first as I promised some words of advice from one of our partners at Mishkondorea for your business I'm Sonal Gandhi. I'm a partner in the real estate group at Mishkondorea. I act for the private individual and their companies in buying and selling high-end residential properties in central London, as well as acting for private banks in their secured lending work um, on residential properties. The most important thing to know about working on complicated transactions is to effectively appoint a pivotal person that's going to act as the project manager of that transaction. Invariably, there's going to be a number of parties involved. It goes without saying that with so many people involved in a transaction, things can start going astray. So it's essential to have a go-to person. It's very much like that person is the conductor of an orchestra. All of the players are musicians in that orchestra. They each have a piece of music to read. Without that conductor, they're not going to play in tune, in harmony, to get the end result. Therefore, my advice is to have that person who can control, who can communicate and ensure that all parties are cooperating together. Too many cooks, disaster. They all start going off on their own agenda without having that person to essentially manage the process and effectively deliver that goal for that client. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business but it's personal. There are absolutely loads of ways for you to enjoy all our former Jazz Shapers and indeed to hear this programme with Ben again as well. You can ask Alexa to play Jazz Shapers and there you can hear many of the recent programmes or if you pop Jazz Shapers into iTunes or your preferred podcast platform, you can enjoy the full archive. But back to today's guest, he's a doctor. His name is Ben Maruthapu co-founder and CEO of Seracare, multi-award winning technology company, Transforming Social Care. Ben, I've got my head around the fact that you've created a team that you asked for advice before from people that had created similar technology platforms, or rather a technology platform. Those first few months, um, you had to raise money. What's it like going to raise money the very first time? The very first time, uh, it's tricky because you get asked questions that you perhaps didn't really think about. But it's also um, a really valuable process because you rapidly understand what investors are looking for because they tend to ask quite similar questions Mm. um, once you've met enough of them and in turn what really is important about the business. So go on, what are they looking for from your perspective? It's a combination of at an early stage you have to have a very strong team. You need to be tackling a problem that definitely needs a solution but also has a large market where the conditions of that market do make it amenable to disruption and transformation. And then I think you've got to have a robust financial model. You've got to have or be in a sector where you can get, as some people would say, strong unit economics so that the cost of acquiring a customer um, is significantly outweighed by the revenue or the sales that you may generate from them based on the services that they request. And that may be, it sounds extremely simple, and it probably is, but validating those economics in the early stage of a business and making sure that they're robust and as you get bigger and bigger, they maintain the same or even get better, that's that's more challenging. And how did they believe your answers to those three questions? I mean, I assume your, your, your team is robust, it speaks for itself, you can articulate and quantify the size of the problem and therefore the opportunity for disruption. But financially, I mean, you're kind of making it up, aren't you, at the beginning? You can test out what some of the interest might be in 
your product or your service. Um, you can look at benchmarks and other companies in the sector to see how they're operating or even in other countries where there may be similar models that are um, embarking on the on the same journey. This type of information helps you in the earlier stages but then of course once you've been going for some months people want real numbers. Did you enjoy the process? I do enjoy. Uh, I mean the, at the beginning you know the raising the money bit I mean. Yeah I really enjoyed that actually. I got to meet many interesting people from all walks of life who had become successful in their own way, either as entrepreneurs or um, through being really astute investors or in other means as well, or having a corporate life. And it was a great networking opportunity. Um, It was also a phenomenal chance to learn and hear about their stories as well, which was a big inspiration. And the team around you, as you talk about the business, it's clear that you understand the different areas of it, the different variables involved, the, the, the direction you're going in. What would the team say about Ben, no longer the doctor, but now the leader, if they were to describe you? A couple of adjectives. Determined yeah. and ambitious. I think those would probably be a couple of words. Um, building a, a startup is tricky, but building it in the social care space is particularly challenging um, because here you've got, uh, yes, you have amazing amounts of demand for the services because we have an ageing population in the UK and internationally, but at the same time you have a shortage of supply of staff and you actually have care workers leaving the country because of political challenges such as Brexit and other conditions. Um, There have been reduced There's been reduced public sector rates and spending on social care, which is now starting to increase. But that happened for many years because of austerity measures. And structurally, people have found it very difficult to scale in this sector as well, in part because of their outdated business practices. But all of this paints quite a challenging landscape that we need to overcome as a, as a business, as a startup, um, as Sarah. And that's quite different to, I think, other startups that, let's say, operate in financial services, where you can see a booming market potentially, or you have many potential users for your product. Here, um, the climate uh, of social care is intrinsically challenged. It is a difficult market. And we're trying to tackle those challenges using technology. But of course, it creates a more difficult environment to build a business and build it quickly. Um, people are not commodities, but business is about profit. So tell me how you square that circle. We think, um, and I definitely believe, uh, if you can provide a better and higher quality service and really look after your customers and users well, and in turn their family members, then the business will grow, right? So you start with quality, you start with them at the centre of it, and of course, actually, our care workers themselves, because they need to be valued, empowered, treated well. Uh, and then the rest of the equation um, works itself out. Really, our mission is to support our users as well as we possibly can in their home. Mm. And we back solve from there in terms of how we develop our technology, how we expand, where we invest, our financial model and so on. But you're not selling bank accounts. You are selling a service of a human being and mm. in, going into another mm-hmm. person's home and looking after them in a way that's not just appropriate, but that's fantastic and 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 nurturing and all those other things. How do you guarantee the quality of this product? So ensuring quality is one of the difficulties I think the sector has faced. Um, With us, it really starts with our staff. So ensuring that the care workers that we vet, we recruit, we onboard and then we train 
are uh, up to a higher standard as possible. This is in part through ensuring that the um, processes for onboarding them are really rigorous. Um, and so we do have a very extended process for identifying potential care workers, seeing how they may operate in a care space in a person's home, onboarding them, putting them through an induction, and then even when they are delivering the service, getting regular feedback from service users, from family members, and also supervising those caregivers and care workers in the home to ensure that the service that they're delivering is high quality and at a high standard. So I think it all revolves around your staff Mm. and who you decide to recruit and hire and then how you decide to empower and support and monitor them in the home and where they are operating. And over the course of the last few years, I know you've had lots, I think I was reading some fantastic reviews of of the service, as it were, where you've had issues. How have you dealt with them? Because I can imagine, again, an issue, Mm -hmm. and we live in a very different world now to 10 years ago where issues get quickly amplified online and you're not finished, but you've got a problem. How have you quickly addressed the problems and has it affected your reputation? So it's always important to be on the front foot, I think, um, and that's why monitoring your uh, staff and care workers, both digitally and in person, is key so that you can preempt. Uh, anything that may occur. And so even now, we have a data analytics part of our platform that automatically ranks the reports that come from any visit uh, based on their risk profile and whether they need to be viewed by a person promptly and if anything needs to be done by it. Care also is can be very subjective mm. um, and it's very intimate. It can even depend on the personality difference that someone receiving care and someone giving care has can depend on languages it's very intimate and that's why it's also important to ensure that the match between someone delivering the service and someone receiving it is extremely important then if something does occur let's say um, one of the numerous staff that we have doesn't deliver care uh, to the standard that we'd hope yes we need to nip it in the bud so we need to communicate with them immediately see if there's potentially another care worker who could potentially provide services in the interim Um, Of course, communicate with the person receiving services and their family members, maybe liaise with other stakeholders as needed, and then zoom in on what the issue may have been so that we can tackle it. I imagine also the the important part you just alluded to, the family members, the person who might indeed be organising and even paying for the care, potentially, they're a critical stakeholder in this, to use your language, critical person. Have you now developed methodologies to ensure that that person is also looked after? Because in a way, they're they're not the end client, but they're the client. Absolutely. Um, Engaging the family members is critical. And when I've had to organise care myself, that's what I've seen as a shortcoming of the current care system because you may be organising care for a loved one, you may not live in the same place, but that means it's very difficult to be kept up to date and abreast of what's happening and if there are any issues that need to be addressed. And so using our platform, family members, uh, assuming consent has been given, can access the care reports that our care workers are logging after every single visit. And so they can see in real time what's happening and what type of services are being provided to their loved one. And we in turn also do wellness checks where we will contact the family member on a regular basis to see what their perception of the service is and tell them how things are going so that they're really kept in the loop um, and the relationship and the, uh, the circle of connectivity is as tight and close as it can be. 
It sounds like you're obviously on it, and that's an important part of this, as we said, but it's not a product in the traditional sense. Stay with me for my final chat with my guest today. That's Ben Marathapu. Plus, we'll be playing a track from Refugee Camp All-Stars and Lauren Hill. That's all coming up in just a moment here on Jazz FM. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's oh. personal. Unexpected. Mm. Multi-dimensional. I'm a lazy, unexpected sound. The sweetest thing I've ever known was like the kiss on a collarbone. That was fantastic, wasn't it? Refugee Camp All-Stars and Lauren Hill, the sweetest thing. I'm with Ben Maruthapu. Just for a few more minutes, we've been talking about the difference in running a business where people are at the heart of it mm. and where the service is about people. Mm. So talking about people, in terms of your advisory board, who sits on it and why have they been selected? So the chair of our advisory board uh, is Sir David Bean, who... Um, formerly formerly ran the CQC, the National Regulator for Health and Social Care uh, in England. And it's really helpful to get his expertise, um, given we're always striving to be compliant from a regulator's point of view, but also trying to um, push the boundaries, see how regulation can be more innovative and how we can support that uh, change as the sector also evolves itself. And, and and the people involved, you you mentioned friends from school who helped you at the beginning. Are there other key people that are part of your support network as well, whether formally on the board or informally not? Um, our chairman, uh, Peter Sands, um, so he formerly ran Standard Chartered Bank mm. um, and chaired Davos, and now he runs the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, Malaria. But he's um, a brilliant inspiration, very seasoned businessman and always a wise counsel during points when we need to make decisions in the company and otherwise. I mean, he's a he's a great guy and he's been with the company since almost the very beginning. I knew him before uh, Sarah as well, so I see him um, as a mentor as well. How did you attract these people, Ben? I mean, these are proper names. They really believe in what we're trying to do. I think most people through one means or another, have experienced the care sector. Their parent, their loved one, their relatives, friends and colleagues who may have had to organise care. And so they see that there are challenges, but challenges that can be tackled and the tremendous value that could create for people receiving services, people giving the services and society as a whole. Mm. I think that mission is something that numerous people align with and believe in, and that's how we've been able to draw a great array of people to back and support us. The the other thing that strikes me about you is that you're still involved in the world of care from a completely not-for-profit uh, perspective. You're a trustee and board member at Skills for Care. Uh, you're a co-founder and board member at NHS Innovation Accelerator. You're the founder and chairman at UK Medical Students Association, providing free educational resources. All these things are really, really good things to do. I often ask the question, how do you find the time? I'm not going to ask that question because people like you find the time. What value do you get from it? Is it a sense of giving back or is it a genuine sense of learning stuff that you also uh, see as you are involved in these different spaces? It's both. Um, So I think these are all amazing platforms to transform sectors, industries at a different level to perhaps what we're doing at Sarah's in more of a national or regional level. And it's something that I enjoy. Right. I mean, I loved my time as a medical student. Uh, there are lots of things I learned along the way. 
I think chairing the UKMSA is a means of giving back to the medical student community, making sure people have the education resources that they need, uh, regardless of their background, to ensure their time at medical school is successful. With the NHS Accelerator, it's a means to support the NHS in continuously striving to revolutionise itself, to adopt innovation at scale, to improve the offering to, to patients and to staff. So I enjoy it. I mean, it's a, it's a massive passion of mine, healthcare, innovation, technology, and these are simply different means by which I can contribute to the sector and to society. Where's this going to go? Five years from now, if we were to meet again, what would you be saying to me? What's the, the postscript on this conversation? Long term in the future, I think healthcare is going to move from hospital to home, as opposed to, let's say, seeing your cardiologist in the hospital or visiting your GP or seeing a nurse for, um, let's say, dialysis in the hospital all of that will be done in the home when and where you need it because it's more convenient it's potentially more affordable it results in better patient outcomes and we've seen this movement in so many other parts of our lives if you take retail if you want to buy books or buy music or buy clothes you will do that most of the time now online and you'll get it delivered to your home within a few hours or on the same day and that's extremely convenient it's affordable um, it's fast And we've seen that movement similar in the banking industry where you manage uh, your bank account online, uh, even educational facilities which are available online. I think healthcare as a result is going to move online, but also it's going to move to the home. So if you need a nurse or a doctor or a test, you'll get it in your own home as opposed to you having to go to a GP practice or hospital, which has been the model, frankly, for over a century now and is in need of disruption. And so Sarah, I think in five years down the line, will be delivering that. Whatever healthcare service you need in your home, you may be an older person, you may be younger, we'll deliver it, but we'll also do it through technology. I like that vision. I wish you all the best because it's, uh, it, it's been fabulous meeting you. you. You're so clear and, and you have such an exciting view of what could happen. And I really hope it does. For all of us, not just for you. Um, just before I let you go, though, um, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? It's Cinnamon by Nina Simone. And I think... It's a beautiful, timeless song. On the one hand, you've got the piano, which is pacey and light, and then you've got these deep, soulful vocals. Um, I think building on what we talked about before, um, if there are challenges or wrongs in your life, you probably need to face them as opposed to running away from them. I think that links to some of the meaning of the song. That was Cinnamon from Nina Simone, the song choice of my business shaper today, Dr. Ben Maruthapu. Determined, mission led, and someone who understood that confronting things and dealing with stress and processing it properly was the way through it, whether it was a medical issue or a business issue. I think there'll be great things coming for this person and this business in the future. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a great weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mish Kondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoyed that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazzshapers.